Good afternoon, everyone. It's a little sleepy sounding. Come on, everyone, wake up. Good afternoon. All right, good. Get a little blood flowing through the system today. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's Banner Lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. As always, let me thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. Now, before we proceed with today's program, let me remind you about our next Banner Lecture, which is just about a month from now, at noon on Thursday, March 6th. Uh, on that day, uh, Cynthia Kerner will deliver a banner lecture entitled, We Cannot Be Tame Spectators, Four Centuries of Virginia Women's History. March is Women's History Month, so we're kicking it off. And if you've ever heard Cindy speak, she is a great lecturer. She was here a couple years ago and did a, a wonderful talk. Um, the first installment of this year's See You in Class program, which are our evening, uh, our evening education series, uh, the first installment for 2014 begins tonight. Bert Dunkerley from the Richmond National Battlefield Park, who's taught here in the past, uh, will lead a two-part class entitled 1814, War Comes to Washington, D.C. and Alexandria. Uh, the classes will meet at 5.30 p.m. this evening and again next Thursday, the 13th of February. This is, of course, the bicentennial of the War of 1812, and uh, 1814 was a very interesting year in that war when the, the Brits burned Washington, which I know some of us occasionally um, think about doing, but uh, they actually did it. Now, if you can't make it to that class, uh, Bert's class, the next one scheduled, is the evenings of March 6th and 13th. And that day, uh, one of our old friends, Brigadier General John W. Jack Mountcastle, will be leading a class entitled Hard War in the Old Dominion, the Civil War in 1864. He's done this for each of the first several years of the sesquicentennial, and he will do that again in March. I also want to tell you about a special event that will be taking place here on Sunday in the Robbins Family Forum, and there was a slide up, I think, while you were sitting down. Um, and that will be at 1 p.m. this Saturday, the 8th, and it's a part of this year's uh, VCU Southern Film Festival. And we'll be hosting a showing that day of a feature film called Mickey, a family story, which was uh, produced in 2004 and written by a new, relatively new Virginian, John Grisham. And it was filmed all here in Virginia. Uh, it stars Harry Connick Jr. in a touching family film about parenting, ethics, and one of John Grisham's passions, Little League Baseball. And the interesting thing about it, in addition to showing the film, we'll have a post-film discussion that will include a couple uh, that has become fairly well known around uh, these parts recently, and that's Richard and Kathy Verlander, who are the fathers of, uh, of course, Justin Verlander. And they will be here for a post-film discussion, I guess, about themes of youth baseball and parenting and all that sort of stuff. And the event is co-sponsored by the Richmond Flying Squirrels. It's free and it's open to the public. That's 1 p.m. here on Saturday. And you can find more information, of course, about all these things, uh, these classes, these lectures, events like the film festival, uh, bus trips, and other things on our website, vahistorical.org, or at the museum shop when you leave today. So little last piece of housekeeping, if you have a cell phone, Please take it out and check it. Make sure it will not beep, chirp, squawk, or play when the saints go marching in at some point during this lecture. Well, anyone familiar with the civil rights movement in Virginia, of course, knows the name Oliver Hill. As a prominent attorney, his work against racial discrimination helped end the doctrine of separate but equal. Throughout his long career, Hill helped win landmark legal decisions involving equality in pay for black teachers, access to school buses, voting rights, jury selection, and employment protection. Today's speaker will focus on the early period of Hill's career by examining the letters between him and his wife, Bernie. This was during the first few years of their marriage while he was struggling to launch a law practice in Roanoke and she was teaching school in Washington, D.C. The 1934 through 36 
letters illuminate Hill's early association with the NAACP and the Virginia Teachers Association, work that led in future years to participation in historic court challenges to Jim Crow segregation. Margaret Eads is a retired editorial and political writer for the Norfolk Virginian Pilot. She spent three decades at the newspaper, primarily living here in Richmond and working out of the State Capitol Bureau. Margaret has written four books, including Claiming the Dream, The Victorious Campaign of Douglas Wilder of Virginia, and most recently, a very personal book, Finding Sarah, A Daughter's Journey. She's currently working on a book about Richmonders Oliver Hill and Spotswood W. Robinson III and their pivotal role in eliminating Jim Crow laws. She's a non-resident fellow of the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities for the purposes of that project. Margaret also published an article in our own Virginia Magazine last year about today's subject. And that issue, along with her recent book, Finding Sarah, will be available in our museum shop after the lecture for you to purchase and to have her sign. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Margaret Eads, who will speak to us today about the letters of Oliver and Bernie Hill. Thank you, Paul. Good afternoon. September 28, 1934. Bernie Walker Hill, a 23-year-old elementary school teacher in Washington, D.C., is writing to her husband of 23 days. My own dear husband, your letter was greatly appreciated when it did get here. I have to admit, I was a little disappointed in both the lateness of its arrival and its practicability. You certainly can damper one's ardor. Please, try next time to put a little warmth into your letters. <laughs> I realize it's your nature to be temperate in everything, but you can see that such an impersonal letter does not fill the role of husband, and so on and so forth, your loving wife, Bernie. Oliver Whitehill, who is launching a law practice in Roanoke, replies, Dearest Bernie, just how is my darling wife doing? <laughs> I had a wonderful dream about you last night. It seemed that you were all gowned down, looking too gorgeous for any earthly good, and you were officiating at some social function or the other, and I was sitting off gazing at you in mute admiration. <laughs> and so on and so forth. Remember that I am always remembering you. Love, your first and last husband. <laughs> now, we all knew that Oliver Hill was a smart man. But here, in his first letters to his new wife, we get added proof that he was an astute and quick learner. <laughs> Those of us who live in Richmond know Oliver Hill as an icon of the civil rights movement. He was a local, national, state luminary. We can drive down Oliver Hill Way. We can go into the Oliver Hill Courts building. We can reflect on Oliver Hill's image in the Civil Rights Memorial on the Capitol grounds, recall with pride the moment when Bill Clinton bestowed upon him the nation's highest civilian honor, a Presidential Medal of Freedom, and after Hill's death in 2007, at the age of 100, we can recall that a competition sponsored by the Richmond Times-Dispatch editorial page proclaimed him the greatest Virginian of the 20th century and 20th century Virginia's preeminent force for good. So it's instructive and maybe a little reassuring to the rest of us mortals to be reminded that universal acclaim did not come overnight, and that along the way, even in a life of such tremendous achievement, there were moments of struggle and challenges and setbacks. One such moment for Hill came in the mid-1930s, when he had just graduated from Howard Law School, and he set out for Roanoke with great optimism and excitement. There he planned to set up a law practice and also to form a beachhead in the war on Jim Crow segregation that was envisioned by Charles Hamilton Houston, who was Hill's mentor and Howard University's visionary law vice dean. 
Mr. Hill was embarking on a new marriage as well. On September 5th, 1934, he and his schoolteacher fiance, Bernie Walker, married at her parents' home in Washington, D.C. Within a few days, they kissed goodbye, and Oliver set off for Western Virginia in pursuit of his dream. Bernie stayed behind in Washington. Two years later, disappointed and in debt, Hill had to confront reality. The Roanoke experiment had failed. The twin hurdles of the Depression and the fact that many black citizens were not yet willing to entrust their legal fortunes to a black attorney had proved too difficult to surmount. Mr. Hill returned to Washington in the summer of 1936, and he waited tables and did labor organizing for three years. Then, having amassed a small nest egg, he moved to Richmond to try his hand anew at lawyering. The rest, as they say, is history. From this vantage point, we can look back on 1936, know of all the acclaim that was to come, and realize that what seemed to be a defeat for Mr. Hill was actually merely a course correction. Relocation really proved necessary for the struggle and glory to come. Almost certainly, he could not have become such a central figure in the assault on inequality in public education and the dismantling of Jim Crow laws had he been operating from a Western Virginia base. His presence here in Richmond allowed him to become the face of the Virginia Civil Rights Movement as it battled obstructionist state legislators and recalcitrant governors through the 1940s and 50s. Proximity also permitted him to have a central role in some of the major cases that came out of Virginia. Alston v. School Board of Norfolk, which equalized teacher salaries, and Davis v. School Board of Prince Edward County, one of five cases that combined into Brown v. Board of Education, striking down separate schools. Residency in Richmond also allowed for frequent trips to Washington, D.C., where Hill and his law partner, Spotswood Robinson, who are framing Thurgood Marshall in the center here, joined with William Hasty, Leon Andy Ransom, James Nabrit, and a few others in a tight-knit Howard Brotherhood that crafted, debated, and honed the legal strategies that would transform America. A couple of years ago, after I'd retired from the Virginian pilot, I decided to try my hand at researching and writing a book that I'd thought about a couple of decades earlier. In 1989, Anne Hobson Freeman's well-received book on the Hunton and Williams Law Firm came out. And it occurred to me then that arguably Richmond's most consequential 20th century partnership was not a silk stocking law firm, but a much smaller operation on the other side of Broad Street. I thought that that firm, known during most of the 40s and 50s as Hill, Martin, and Robinson, and later as Hill, Tucker, and Marsh, surely deserved a book as well. So when the opportunity to start fleshing out that idea came about three years ago, one of my first steps was to sift through Mr. Hill's papers, which are located at Virginia State. At that point, the papers were still unprocessed. So it was a matter of going through box after box of old anniversary and Valentine's Day cards, of newspaper clippings and sort of random scrabblings or scribblings in search of the occasional gem. And one of those gems turned out to be a collection of about 200 letters written by Mr. and Mrs. Hill, Oliver and Bernie, if I may, for purposes of this talk. Uh, the postmarks revealed that she was in Washington when the letters were written, and he was in Roanoke. The dates fell between the autumn of 1934 and the summer of 1936. The Hills wrote to each other every few days. The letters appear to have been transported by train so that they could write a letter one day and be pretty well assured that they would receive, the other person would receive it the next. If there was a truly urgent matter, they sent the news by Western Union. Telephone calls were brief and rare, a luxury. So letters were their primary form of communication for two years. 
I'm not sure that I would have taken such immediate notice of the Hill's letters, except that I had just finished a book involving letters to my mother, to and from my mother, um, Sarah Barnes Eads. Sarah died in 1950 when she was 34 and I was three years old. And the primary source for that book had been a whole trove of letters that we found after the death of my father and Sarah's closest sister. That, uh, the first of those letters was written when Sarah was 11. The last was written the day before she died. And those letters had revealed my mother to me with a force and a depth that I would not have thought possible. So when I came across the Hill's letters, I instantly knew that these epistles would tell me a lot about the people, the times, and the circles in which they moved. And I was not disappointed. I'd like to give you a little background on Mr. and Mrs. Hill, and then I'll share a few things that I learned about Oliver and Bernie and their personalities from the letters. And finally, I'll tell you about a couple of significant events that Mr. Hill participated in during those two years in Roanoke, including the beginnings of his work on school desegregation and his first legal case for the NAACP. Oliver Hill was born in Richmond in 1907, and he spent his first six years in the city. His father was the son of the founding minister of Mount Carmel Baptist Church, which today is located in Church Hill, but then was in what we know as Gilpin Court. Uh, the father was a ne'er-do-well who left the family not long after Oliver's birth. Faced with calamity, Olivia White, his mother, packed her bags and set off in search of employment at the luxurious homestead hotel in Hot Springs, Virginia. She left young Oliver in the care of his grandmother and grand aunt. After remarrying several years later, Oliver, or Olivia reclaimed her son and moved to Roanoke, where his stepfather, Joe Hill, operated a pool hall until Prohibition shut it down. Then Olivia and Joe moved back to Hot Springs, leaving Oliver with surrogate parents, Lilia and Bradford Pentecost. This was the house in which they lived in Roanoke. The Pentecosts were a prominent couple in Roanoke's Gainsborough district. He was a talented chef working for the West, uh, Norfolk and Western Railway, and Mrs. Pentecost was a formidable woman who demanded respect from both blacks and whites. Hill later, later credited the couple with nurturing the self-esteem that undergirded his political and legal activism. By high school, Oliver was reunited with his parents in Washington, D.C., where he attended Dunbar High School and then Howard Undergraduate and Howard Law. Fortuitously, he entered Howard Law in 1930, just as Charles Houston was transforming the law program from an unaccredited night school to an accredited day school. Houston saw as his mission the creation of a cadre of black lawyers who would be spread to the hinterlands for the bold purpose of transforming America. Hill and his classmate Thurgood Marshall became best friends. They knew each other as peanuts and turkey, and they were rivals in the class of 1933. Bernie Walker, and we have very few young pictures of the Hill, so you'll be seeing them throughout their lives today, often much older than the point at which we're talking about. But Bernie, tall, long-haired, smart, and gracious, emerged early in Hill's law school days as the favorite and long trail of girlfriends. At the time, she was attending Minor Normal School, a respected teacher training program near Howard. Four years younger than Oliver, Bernie had been born in Richmond. Her father, Andrew Walker, and his brother, Armistead, ran a successful bricklaying business. Armistead was married to Maggie Walker, Richmond's entrepreneurial phenom. When Armistead was killed in a tragic accident, the grieving Andrew decided to leave the city. He and his wife, Yetta, and their five children moved to Youngstown, Ohio, where he worked in the steel mills. Both of the Walker girls, Bernie and her older sister, Evelyn, were academic standouts at their Youngstown High School. Later, with two of their three boys grown and living in Washington, D.C., the uh, 
family decided, Andrew and Yetta decided to move to the capital in part to allow Bernie to pursue her teaching dream at Minor, and there she met Oliver Hill. As Oliver prepared to enter law practice in the summer of 1934, it made sense for him to set out for Roanoke. He already had a toehold there in the community through the Pentecost, and black lawyers in the city were scarce. It made sense for Bernie to remain in Washington, where she had a secure teaching contract and could continue taking courses at Howard. So in September 34, 27-year-old Oliver and 23-year-old Bernie launched their long-distance marriage. The letters written over the next two years reveal much about the couple, their personalities, and their marriage. First, each of them was a big person, not just physically, but in presence and in spirit. They were two strong personalities, natural leaders, each admiring the other, each dedicated to the other's success, and yet each holding their own in the relationship. Bernie trailed Oliver in both education and worldly experience, but as the letter I read to begin with attests, she was quite willing and able to stand up for herself. Attorney Robert Gray, who was a close boyhood friend of Oliver Hill Jr.'s, gave me this assessment of his friend's parents. It matches what I saw in the letters. Oliver Sr. is very outgoing. He's an alpha male, gregarious, commanding, demanding, a big, big person in stature and in the space he takes up. And Bernie was an alpha woman. They were the alpha couple. She was leading this, leading that, very powerful. Of course, both were younger in the 1930s, but those traits were already evident. Bernie in Washington and Oliver in Roanoke assumed leading roles in fraternal groups and enjoyed a wide circle of friends. Bernie was the president of her social club, the Wolfs, and she was forever planning cocktail parties, dances, and club meetings. Oliver teased, if your great interest in your sorority continues, I would not be surprised to learn that they had made you grand, most worshipful potentate or whatever high-sounding title you give your officers. But he was no less actively heading up committees for dances or plays or other activities of the Omega Sci-Fi fraternity, even being elected statewide president during the end of his time in Roanoke. If I could get as good at coining a little dough as I am at handling these other matters, I would be all set, wrote Oliver, as he was chairing a dance committee for the fraternity. Both of the Hills were ambitious and competitive. Both excelled at games. They were avid contract bridge players, and it tickled me that they would sometimes write out the description of an entire hands play when they were apart. The ability to organize and lead beyond, uh, went beyond frivolities, however. Reflecting mutual support, Oliver managed to give a surprise handwritten note to Bernie on the day she was scheduled to give a demonstration class for teachers and administrators. He predicted, you are going to knock them cold with ye old lesson this afternoon. I will be with you in thought from two to five. And when Roanoke's most promising young black lawyer was asked to give his most significant local address, or his first significant local address, a Negro Achievement Week speech on notable achievements of Negro lawyers, Bernie pitched in eagerly. She consulted with friends at Howard Law School and elsewhere, and she mailed Oliver a book by historian Carter G. Woodson with recommended chapters and page numbers. She promised to send anything else she unearthed by special delivery. As similar as the Hills were in their bent toward achievement and excellence, they were quite different temperamentally. Oliver was passionate about ideas, but in his personal dealings, except for some rare instances when he lost his temper, he was usually detached, practical, logical, lawyerly. He had a distaste for emotionalism that made him disdainful of many black churches of the era. The preacher got off on the Holy Ghost, and all the old sisters and brothers got happy and commenced to holler and clap their hands, he reported after one Sunday morning service. It was wonderful to them and disgusting to me. <laughs> on another occasion, he described a visiting minister's address as splendid, but added, 
I still don't believe in all that baloney they hand the people and all that playing upon the emotions of the people. He urged his young wife to practice caution and self-restraint. In contrast, Bernie could be quite emotional. As a teacher, she had a warm and nurturing nature. She also was prone to melancholy, maybe even a bit of depression, and she was not above jealousy involving her outgoing, highly social husband. She wrote, I've come to the conclusion that tears are really very good things. People who can cry are really blessed. See, you can't cry, so your feelings and emotions are all closed inside of you. Mine are washed out. After one aggravating episode with her sorority, she observed, I guess I would feel peculiar if I didn't have something to worry me. The Hill's first major fight occurred about six months into their marriage when Oliver took the girlfriend of one of his fraternity brothers to a dinner. Word of the event reached Bernie within a day. <laughs> she was livid. What it takes to let a person down, you certainly have it. You succeeded in embarrassing me beyond words today and in front of my friends. If this hurts you, it won't hurt like the hurt you laid me open to today. Oliver replied with equal fury in a record-long, 10-page letter. <laughs> Either you believe in a person or you don't, he admonished. And if you have confidence in a person, it won't be shaken by the idle prattle of some gossip monger who can't attend to their own business. I cannot build up a practice or inspire the confidence of the people here running up to Washington to keep a flock of numbskulls from gossiping. Over the next week, they resolved the matter. Oliver urged Bernie to do everything in her power to temper her jealousy, and a contrite Bernie replied that she would. She vowed, starting today, I am beginning my campaign for temperance. Even so, and I was proud of her, she asserted her medal one last time. I still don't think so much of you taking that lady to the dance. <laughs> But I'll try to show myself wherein it was okay. More love than ever before, Bernie. Oliver wasn't just trying to improve Bernie. He was also constantly seeking to improve himself. He advised, cultivate and develop the habit of weighing matters before acting. I don't always practice it, but I've been trying to cultivate both the habit and the ability to cast aside illusions which surround a matter and see the naked problem, looking at both its assets and defects and seeing which predominates. This spiel all boiled down is acquire and use common sense in your dealings. Determined to be productive while awaiting his very few clients, Oliver reported that he had begun rising at 6.30 a.m. in an effort to develop my strength of character. He planned to improve his memory through a series of exercises. While I'm not busy otherwise, I'm going to try and acquire all the little essentials that go to make up the polished and well-rounded lawyer. He studied a book of modern essays and read the speeches of abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Those old brothers were wizards at the masterful use of the English language, he wrote. Bernie helped fill her void with night classes toward an undergraduate degree from Howard. She uncomplainingly supplemented his meager income and urged him not to despair. She wrote, I really think Roanoke is your place. Keep your chin up and always know that I believe in you. By the autumn of 1935, Hill's position in Roanoke seemed on a more solid footing. He might not be earning much more money, but his growing reputation was resulting in more interesting cases and a burgeoning connection to the state's racial activists. September brought Hill his first work on behalf of the NAACP. Charles Houston tapped his former student to investigate a complaint from Whitville, Virginia. A black man named Harrison Little was accused of shooting a white police officer. Memories lingered of a particularly gruesome lynching in, lynch in Whitville nine years earlier in August 1926 and local African-Americans wanted to make sure that there was no repeat of that atrocity. In retrospect, the Harrison Little case would offer early evidence of Hill's legal skill and his personal fortitude. 
It illustrated the difficulties that faced black lawyers as they battled racial prejudice both inside and outside the courtroom. And it demonstrated several ways in which whites, sometimes including those in high authority, used backdoor channels to mitigate some of the worst abuses of the judicial system. The little case came to trial on October 23rd and 24th in Withville. The trial earned Hill local and even some regional notice. He wrote, owing to the local prejudice of the people, it is going to be an uphill battle. We will be quite a curiosity, for if there has ever been a colored lawyer who pleaded a case before the bar of the Whitfield County Court, it is beyond the memory of living man. On the opening morning of the trial, Hill encountered a procedural challenge that impressed him deeply. In the 1930s, Virginia required lawyers to be formally accepted to the bar of each individual court in which they appeared. Typically, another lawyer would speak on behalf of the newcomer. Hill had no such advocate. For a black lawyer appearing in a court where he knew no one and where no black lawyer had appeared in years, if ever, the requirement was a daunting hurdle. He described the moment in this 2008 account. When I walked into court, nobody in there but the Commonwealth's attorney. I went over, handed him my card, offered my card, and told him I was a lawyer from Roanoke, and I was there that day to represent the defendant, and would he move my admission to the court. And he did not take my card. He looked me in the eye and said, I don't know you. And I said, you're just as right as you can be, and put the card back in my pocket, went over and sat down. The courtroom filled up, and I had sat on the front row among the waiting group, and wasn't anybody sitting down there but white folks. But finally, the judge came in and called for motions. I went up and told the judge, I'm Oliver W. Hill from Roanoke, a member of the Bar of Virginia, and I am here to represent the defendant in this case. May I be enrolled as a member of the Bar of this court? And the judge told the clerk to enroll me. Hill's frequent mention of this episode in recent years suggests to me that his racial isolation in that courtroom, coupled with the fact that he could not even be sure that he would be allowed to represent his client, created for him a searing memory. At trial, the major witnesses agreed on events. This is Harrison Little, uh, the prison photo that was taken when he came to the penitentiary in Richmond. At trial, the major witnesses agreed on events leading up to the shooting. On the night of September 15th, Little, who worked at a local cleaner's, came home drunk. He threatened suicide. His wife and her mother grabbed a gun away from him, and his disabled brother-in-law went for help. By the time two officers arrived, Little had quieted and was upstairs in bed. Then the stories diverged. The officer said he knocked on the bedroom door and ordered Little to come out. When there was no response, the officer said he pushed the door open. He saw Little standing at the foot of the bed holding a shotgun. Little turned suddenly and fired. Officer Williams fired back. The men exchanged four shots. Little was struck in the jaw and Williams, the officer, in the elbow. Little, however, told a different story about who shot first. According to him, he was in bed when an unknown voice ordered him to come out of the room. He picked up a shotgun. Suddenly, the door swung open and a light shone in his face. At that moment, he said he recognized the voice as belonging to Officer Williams, and he lowered his gun. Then suddenly, Williams opened fire, striking him in the cheek. Little fired back, he said, in self-defense. During the trial, Hill established that Williams had entered the house illegally without a warrant and that the officer had been dismissed from the state police due to a short temper. The jury found Little guilty of unlawful wounding and sentenced him to four years in the penitentiary in Richmond. Oliver wrote to Bernie, if they had not been such rabid crackers, I might have been even better than that. I conducted myself and my case, or it might have been even better than that. I conducted myself and my case very creditably, I think. The judge, Commonwealth's attorney, lawyers, colored and white people told me the same. It seemed that I impressed everyone but the jury. Still, even the white people who knew the boy and liked him, so they said, flatly refused to testify as character witnesses in his behalf, 
because they were afraid that the prejudice of the white people would reflect itself in the loss of business. Bernie labeled the results a moral victory for you. You know, shooting a, p a policeman is, after all, a very foolish thing, and many a poor colored man has swung for much less than that. From the Whitfield jail, Little wrote a poignant plea for intervention to Governor George Peary on December 1, 1935. That letter is housed at the Library of Virginia. Now, Governor Peary, this officer did not have any warrant to arrest me, and if I had only known who he was, I would not have grabbed my gun at all. The bullet, he noted, had never been removed from his jaw. My jaws are stiff, and I can't chew my food. Can't get my mouth open wide enough to put a teaspoon in it. I am a colored man, but the good Lord put the same feelings in me as he did the white man. In, Feb in February, officials transferred Little from the Wythe County Jail to the penitentiary in Richmond. Hill continued to pursue the case, however, and ironically, that pursuit helped resolve another disagreement with Bernie. In late April, Bernie placed a rare long-distance telephone call to urge Oliver to come to Washington for the weekend. He declined, but noted that he might be a delegate to an upcoming Omega Sci-Fi State Convention in, Rona, or in Richmond in early May. He invited Bernie to join him. Bernie, who had been planning a surprise birthday party for her husband, did not mask her disappointment. She wrote, I'd never even considered your refusing to come here when I called you, and it took me some time to get over it. It was foolish of me to even ask you to come, and it certainly turned out to be embarrassing to me. Bernie did not quite let the matter rest there. There's some truth in the fact that most people find time to do the things they want to do. I'm sorry, but I don't think I'll be able to spend the weekend in Richmond. <laughs> I imagine that you will have a very nice time. Of course, there must be something to gain in going, or I'm sure you wouldn't think of going. The sarcasm was not lost on her husband. He countered with a bit of his own. Oliver wrote, I'm very sorry that you were so disappointed over my, as you put it, refusal to come up there last Friday. One cannot always just jump up and go someplace on the spur of the moment. Washington is not just across the street, you know. I, too, am keenly disappointed. Disappointed over the fact that you did not even consider coming to Richmond. Then came Mr. Hill's trump card, Harrison Little. I do want to thank you, though, for conceding that perhaps I have some other reason for wishing to go to Richmond besides just to have a good time. I have an appointment with the governor at 11.30 Thursday morning. Wish me luck. Hill intended to plead for a pardon for Harrison Little. True to form, Bernie's anger melted in a flash. Her next save letter was a short note giving Oliver the time of her arrival by train in Richmond. <laughs> she wrote, well, the appointment is over and settled by now. How did it turn out? I surely was pulling for you. In preparation for his interview, Hill supplied Governor Perry with several letters recommending a commuted sentence. The most compelling came surprisingly from Judge Sutherland. The judge as much as said that little had been railroaded. After having heard all the evidence in the case, it was my opinion that the defendant should have been acquitted. I do not think he should have had any punishment at all, the judge wrote. On December 23, 1936, Little received a conditional pardon from the governor and was sent home. Years later, Hill cited the Harrison Little case as an indictment of Southern judges in the 1930s and 40s. Judge Sutherland recognized the injustice being done to a poor black man in his courtroom, but he was unwilling to intervene at the community level. Hill wrote, the judge acted in typical fashion. Too many judges refused to set aside jury verdicts and free Negro defendants in situations where they had a different opinion and new justice had been denied. Tracking down that story was for me a fun bit of detective work. Mr. Hill spoke about this case fairly often, but he had forgotten Harrison's little, Harrison Little's name. And what he usually talked about was the procedural 
problem that he confronted, not the details of the case or even the fact that he had taken it all the way to the governor's office. Um, passing through Withville a year or two ago on my way to a family reunion, I stopped off at the courthouse and I had the date, approximate date of the trial, but did not of course know the name or even exactly what had happened. But I went through the records and found a case where a man had been sentenced to four years in the penitentiary for unlawful wounding. His name was Harrison Little. I figured that must have been the case. So back in the car, as we were driving along, I was looking at notes that I'd taken from the Hill's letters. And lo and behold, six months later, I saw the part where he was going to Richmond to meet the governor, and I had jotted down the name of the person, Harrison Little. So here we had a connection. Uh, my next thought was to find the newspapers of the era because Mr. Hill had talked about the, the case being described. But after going to the local community college and various places, it turned out that those newspapers no longer exist. So I thought I was at a bit of a dead end. Then uh, a couple of weeks after that, I was at the Library of Congress going through NAACP papers and was looking at some from the 1930s from Virginia, and lo and behold, there was the letter from Withville written to Charles Houston asking if he would get involved, and his reply saying that he was going to get Oliver Hill to go over and look at the case. So my interest was wedded anew, and I thought, well, maybe the Roanoke Times would have a little something about it, although I sort of doubted that they would have covered this case in Withville. But sure enough, there were two small articles. The newspaper in those days did not write with great depth, but it certainly covered the waterfront. And that told me about the shooting with the police officer. Uh, it also described in some detail the medical care for the officer, but said nothing about any medical care for Harrison Little, because as we know, there was none. So then the next step was to think, well, maybe in the gubernatorial papers somewhere there would be some mention of Hill's visit, although that seemed a little bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. But I went to the Library of Virginia, and the wonderful people there said, oh, well, there were books from the 1930s that listed all the sentences that were pardons and commutations. So we looked through the book, and sure enough, there under 1936 was Harrison Little. So that meant that there were papers with, uh, in the gubernatorial papers through the Secretary of the Commonwealth, and there I found the pardon request and a number of letters from the community in support of Harrison Little. So that was a, a very satisfying undertaking. Some weeks after that, I was, um, let's see, let me find my place here. Um, soon after the Harrison Little trial, Hill accepted a new assignment from the NAACP. This was, uh, these are people who worked on the Virginia education cases during the 1940s. And you see Mr. Hill to the left here. Uh, Spotswood Robinson, his law partner, is at the far right. This new assignment from the NAACP was one that foreshadowed his future life's work. On November 20th, 1935, Houston mailed Hill a check for $10 to cover the expenses for investigating and photographing the condition of black schools near Roanoke. Oliver wrote to Bernie after the excursion, I just got back from my tour of county schools. Did we have a ball? All of the teachers fell in love with us quite naturally. <laughs> he wasn't too, uh, too worried about her jealousy, I guess. A week later, Hill showed those pictures at the first meeting of the Virginia Conference of the first statewide meeting of the Virginia Conference of NAACP branches. The organization planned its maiden gathering for Saturday, November 30, 1935 in Roanoke in conjunction with the annual gathering of the All Black Virginia Teachers Association. This would prove to be an historic coupling. Charles Houston's vision was to attack segregation at its weakest point. He saw that as education because almost anyone could understand the connection between education and achieving the American dream. Houston believed that if lawyers could show the impossibility of creating two truly equal school systems for blacks and whites, 
then the separate part of separate but equal would have to collapse. In Virginia, he wanted the NAACP and the Black Teachers Association to wage war together on disparities, starting with unequal teacher pay. At the time, in 74 of 100 counties and 12 of 24 Virginia cities, the minimum salary for white teachers was higher than the maximum salary for black teachers. Oliver offered the upcoming festivities as an enticement to Bernie, who planned to visit Roanoke for the Thanksgiving holidays. About 500 teachers were expected, and there would be a host of social events. He wrote, of course, none of them will be a social success unless you decide to grace them with your presence. The same letter mentioned that Houston would be addressing the teachers. Hill wrote, Charlie is supposed to make his big speech Thanksgiving night. Now you have something to look forward to. Isn't that just too ducky? Luther Jackson, one of the state's premier black educators, later described Houston's keynote address that night. It challenged teachers to seek legal answers to injustice. Jackson wrote, this brilliant attorney succeeded for the moment in carrying the 500 teachers present up to the very verge of the promised land. Significantly, Houston urged creation of a $1,000 scholarship fund to support any plaintiff who was willing to challenge unequal teacher salaries. The fund was a, a tacit recognition that that person almost certainly would be fired. Soon the fund would be put to good use. At the next day's NAACP meeting, Hill played two roles. First, he was part of an early morning strategy session initiated by Leon Ransom, a Howard professor who was also representing the national NAACP there. The parent group wanted to make sure that Virginia elected leaders who would support Houston's school equalization campaign, but they did not want to appear to be dictating a slate. So they needed to figure out a strategy, and Mr. Hill was part of that group. Later, Ransom reported their success. Second, during lunch, Attorney Hill gave a report on Virginia's unequal school facilities, including overcrowding and a lack of transportation in black schools. Five years later, the association born that weekend in Roanoke led to the first US Supreme Court decision striking down separate and unequal pay scales for black and white teachers. That action, Alston v. School Board of Norfolk, provided a precedent for scores of other communities throughout the South to challenge unequal pay and other forms of disparity. By then, Mr. Hill was relocated to Richmond, and he was part of the legal team that won Alston. His presence in Roanoke in 1935 meant that he was part of that effort from its inception. The parallel part of the NAACP focus in the mid-1930s was forcing integration in graduate and professional programs at state universities. Bernie's letters reveal that Hill narrowly missed playing a visible and perhaps historic role in the effort, comparable to that of Thurgood Marshall in Maryland. The NAACP's first major breakthrough in the push to integrate higher education came in June 1935, when a state judge ordered the University of Maryland Law School to admit Donald Gaines Murray, a highly qualified Amherst graduate. Marshall handled the case in conjunction with Houston. With the Maryland victory on appeal in state court, Houston began searching for a similar plaintiff in Virginia. Temporarily, he believed that he had found the ideal candidate in Alice Jackson, the daughter of a Richmond pharmacist. Jackson had graduated from Virginia Union in 1934 with an English degree and then went on to Smith College where she did graduate work. But she had run out of money and she decided she wanted to apply to the University of Virginia to work on a master's degree in French. On October 5, 1935, Fred Scott, then the university rector, informed Jackson that her application would not be accepted. He wrote, the admission of white and colored persons in the same school is contrary to the long established and fixed policy of the Commonwealth. As the autumn passed, Houston was dismayed to discover that Jackson's academic record at Smith might be problematic. 
Publicly, the prospect of a legal challenge in her behalf remained alive, but privately, the search for an alternative quickened. Communication between Bernie and Oliver reveals that while the NAACP National Office had not yet settled on a Virginia plaintiff, it had identified a lawyer worthy of handling the case, Oliver Hill. In a note on January 21st, 1936, six days after the Maryland Supreme Court upheld Murray's admission, a delighted Bernie passed along the good news to her husband. Dearest Oliver, I'm waiting right now for Bill and Andy to come by for me to go play cards. This is Leon Ransom, who they called Andy, and his wife, whose nickname was Bill. He told me I could tell you, and I want you to know. He and Charlie will be there sometime soon. You have been selected to handle that university case there in Virginia. That surely is swell. Did you know? Now maybe you will see that silver lining. Love, Bernie. Hill's opportunity for early fame never materialized. Instead, Virginia's wide power structure did an end run around the insurgents. Lawmakers first created a graduate program at Virginia State in Petersburg, and then they adopted the Educational Equality Act, which gave scholarships for qualified black students to pursue graduate studies out of state. There would be no court case against the University of Virginia anytime soon. Still, the willingness of the national NAACP legal staff to cast Hill in such a pivotal role signals that his abilities had gained notice and respect. As 1936 progressed, mounting professional esteem did little to ease the couple's financial woes. Bernie's teaching salary remained their anchor. Oliver was barely keeping himself afloat. By May, the cumulative effect of strained finances and long separations had grown too taxing. From outward appearances, Hill's noble experiment with launching a law practice in Southwest Virginia had failed. Oliver wrote, it is almost certain that I will be leaving here within the next two weeks. So if you hear of any kind of a job, notify me at once. Bernie welcomed him with open arms. A man and wife should be together to share alike the problems, failures, and successes of each other. Else how can a complete understanding be had? After all, what is success anyway? To me, it means happiness, however obtained. The next three years would prove to be a struggle. Back in Washington, Hill did labor organizing and waited tables. For a man with two higher education degrees and a plan to help revolutionize America, the period was a sojourn in the Valley of Humility. Still, to an extent that neither of the Hills then recognized, Oliver had laid the foundation for a career that would touch the lives of millions of Americans. In Roanoke from 1934 to 1936, he confronted the injustices of Southern courtrooms for the first time and did not flinch. He strengthened professional and personal connections that would serve him for many years. He distinguished himself to a greater degree than might have been expected in so remote a setting and he nurtured a relationship with a woman whom he would describe more than a half century later as my beloved wife, soulmate, companion, and friend. The Hills Roanoke letters provide a window to a formative, the formative years of a pivotal 20th century Virginia marriage. The, uh, the Hills came to Richmond in the early 40s, I take it. Uh, could you tell us just briefly uh, what Mrs. Hill did after uh, she relocated to Richmond? Yes, Oliver Hill came to Richmond in 1939. And it really uh, it was not until after the war that Bernie moved here. She continued to live in Washington, and Mr. Hill went back and forth some. She worked in the Richmond Public School. She was a teacher, and then she became an administrator later in her life. And she remained a very, uh, very supportive of him and also very social. She was national president of her sorority and a uh, very active woman. 
Yes, uh, my name is Clarence Donneville, and I'm the person who actually selected those letters. I was Mr. Hill's friend and associate. I practiced law with him during the last few years of his life. I was his friend. I arranged his funeral, and I was very much involved uh, with uh, all of his activities after 2000, the year 2000. I traveled with him all around the state uh, and also throughout the country and assisted him in his uh, presentations because he was totally blind and un unable to walk during the last years of his life. So I would like to come up, if I could, for just a few minutes and actually supplement some of the things that you said because of my personal knowledge with, of Mr. Hill and my friendship uh, during his latter years, and also my friendship with Spotswood Robinson, who was introduced to me through Mr. Hill. It's so nice that you're here. And I was at lunch today, I told the story that you told me about Judge Robinson's papers and what unfortunately happened to them. Yes, indeed. And that is why, as soon as Mr. Hill passed, um, I rushed over there and asked his son if I could uh, take charge of his papers. I pulled them all out of his garage. Uh, they were in boxes and in no order at all. I hired a, a truck, a van, and I uh, through a friend of mine who worked for Bank of America, I was able to get third space in Bank of, the Bank of America building down on, on uh, Main Street uh, temporarily. And those papers must have stayed there at the Bank of America building for um, at least a couple years. And then his son arranged to have them permanently selected uh, for Virginia State. So uh, if I could, I would just like to spend another 10 minutes or so uh, talking about some of the things that I think I could add and uh, would uh, make, make the uh, audience understand a little bit more about Mr. Hill through my personal relationship. I'll defer to Paul here as to I I know this is very unusual, but I did feel that um, there were some things that I, would, I thought I could add. And uh, it was such a very thorough presentation that I don't think, <laughs> I don't think there's that much, uh, uh, well, I, I can't add as much as I thought I could. <laughs> this was really wonderful. Uh, you actually um, knew some things that I didn't know. And I really didn't think there was still anybody alive who knew more about Mr. Hill than I did. I believe I know more about him than his son Dukey because Mr. Hill and I traveled around the, the whole country uh, during the last few years of his life. And I stayed in the same uh, room with him in a hotel uh, because he was totally blind and couldn't See, and couldn't uh, get around. He used to, had to use a wheelchair. And during the night, sometime, he would talk about things that happened. 
And uh, for example, one of the stories I know about is that uh, some of the things, I, I really was pleased that you talked about the fact that the trouble that lawyers had in Virginia in the 1930s. One of the things that happened, there were, of course, there was no law school in Virginia in the 1930s that a person of color could attend. And as you've indicated, they had the in-round run whereby uh, they, some lawyers could go outside of the state and the uh, state would provide them with some compensation for that. Well, after they were admitted to the bar in, 19, in the 1930s and up until, I believe, as late as 1940, uh, they had difficulty even using the library of the Supreme Court of Virginia. You wouldn't believe this. But uh, black lawyers uh, were not encouraged to use the library of the, of the uh, library of the Supreme Court of Virginia. And during the 1930s, a black lawyer was there using the library. The librarian asked him to move outside of the crowd uh, into a separate area, a segregated area, and where there was a curtain and wouldn't be seen by the other people using the library. And Mr. Hill, uh, he complained to Mr. Hill, who had just formed the Old Dominion Bar Association, which was a separate uh, law association. And uh, Mr. Hill had to go to the Chief Justice of the, United, of the Supreme Court of Virginia and get permission for black lawyers to use libraries uh, in view of all the lawyers there. You wouldn't believe that. So some other things that happened that I think I could talk about or supplement is I'm probably one of the few people or maybe the only person still alive who actually was present in the Supreme Court at the time when the Brown against Board of Education was argued. I was a student at Morgan College. I left Virginia, I grew up in Roanoke, and swore that I would leave Virginia and never return because of segregation. I hated it. So I went as far as my money would take me to uh, Baltimore. And uh, Thurgood Marshall, of course, was from Baltimore. And I was a student, a young teenage student, uh, and my political science teacher arranged for some of us, to, through, with Thurgood Marshall, who was from Baltimore, to arrange for us to go. And I was sitting there when Spotswood Robinson argued the Supreme Court along with Thurgood Marshall. And later in his life, I became a friend of Spotswood, and Spotswood told me the story that I think you shared earlier about what happened uh, when he was there with Thurgood arguing the case. And um, I was there, of course, and I heard both Spotswood and Thurgood and J. Lindsay Allman on behalf of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I, uh, that encouraged, uh, that uh, probably uh, persuaded me somewhat to study law. I hated segregation and wanted to do something to uh, try to help change it. And I stayed away from Virginia, as I swore I would, for uh, many, many years. But uh, things changed, largely because one of my heroes, um, Governor Holton, who changed Virginia, and I'm writing about that now. Um, and I came back in the year, two, uh, year uh, 1990. I met Mr. Hill, who was my hero, and he had he'd grown up in Roanoke as I had, and um, I uh, got to meet him through my cousin, and he asked me to join his firm when uh, one of the lawyers left, and I did. And so during the last period of my legal career, I worked with Mr. Hill and um, became a friend of Spotswood and also got to know uh, Thurgood Marshall. And one of the things I just wanted to mention briefly 
is that uh, I think that Spotswood's uh, experiences, uh, I was well aware of it, and the activities of the, the, uh, the lawyers um, in Virginia in uh, building and changing America, and the, the Brown case, of course, I was involved, uh, as I mentioned, just uh, with the civil rights activities in the last part. But uh, this, Mr. Hill was my friend, and I knew him so well and did so many things, and I just wanted to come down and just try to supplement some of the things that you said. And I see Judge Benton and his lovely wife are here. And uh, Judge Benton, was, of course, was present. Uh, he was one of the lawyers who helped to change, uh, change America and change Virginia through the Hill Law Firm. Thank you very much.